think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 100 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 101th episode. We now officially have as many episodes as there are Dalmatians. I'm Laurent Carboneau. That feels good, eh? We could we could make a hell of a code out of that. <laughs> and all meets in Rainville. Uh, yeah, and th- this is uh, yeah, this has really been a uh, quite a long time coming here. The the 101st episode, episode 100, uh, quite a milestone as it as it was when we had episode 99, the hundredth episode. Uh, so it's, it's it's such a nice anniversary we've chosen to or milestone that we've chosen to celebrate it twice, really. Uh, but yeah, without, without more ado, I guess let's get right into it. It's been about three weeks since the last one. Um, a, a, we still have no, uh, no fiscal update and still no mandate letter. Wait, I thought we were going to start with, uh, American politics. I thought, I thought we were going to talk about oh, that. Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, our, our hundred, our hundred part series about, <laughs> uh, county, counties that have flipped. And, no, we don't care. In- interviews with people we'll in, te- uh, we'll Arizona. Other tedious Canadians weigh in on that. <laughs> Um, yes, a legislative update. I mean, well, sorry, not legislative update, but I guess we can start more with the the fiscal slash mandate letter update, which we've alluded to in the past, and the government had been teasing more so in uh, early September. It seems to have dropped off the map um, somewhat yeah, confusingly. Like we were sort of, yeah, we, we thought they were coming like any minute, like four weeks ago, five weeks ago. It's not easy making priorities. As like I think we were literally expecting them after Parliament came back from prorogation, which was September twenty third. Yeah, that was yeah. what some <laughs> was of the ago. signals were saying. And the Prime Minister, you know, in front of the National Press Gallery, committed to doing mandate letters. Um, yes. I think it's varied between doing a full new set of mandate letters or even just for um, the ministers that have shuffled. I think it makes more sense to do a, a broader sweep of mandate letters, considering they're all from the pre-COVID world. Yes. Um, but you know, Christia Freeland has been operating. They all need for... to get their marching orders from the UN for the Great Reset again. <laughs> um, Minister Freeland has been operating for how long has it been? Um, two, three months, um, without any sort of mandate letter. Um, I guess maybe Bill Moore knows a lingering mandate letter, but uh, you know, they ha- they haven't even re- relabeled that one. Um, so it's a little strange. Um, I'd say what's particularly strange about it as well is just how significant the documents are in terms of direction to the public service. Like the mandate letters really are the marching orders for the public service in terms of what represent the priorities. So having this long period in which people have hinted at new mandate letters coming and the old mandate letters being sort of stale, um, you know, broadly just doesn't seem good. It seems like it would likely lead to a lot of confused public servants who are sort of, you know, in, in between tasks maybe, um, where they're not really super keen on committing resources to things that might be lopped off um, as part of, uh, you know, changing priorities due to COVID. Um, but here we are in sort of mid-November with no sign of mandate letters, no sort of, you know, I think we stopped hear, hearing hints about mandate letters even. Yes, and uh, of course the, the fiscal update, which has been long, uh, long promised, or fall economic statement, or I, I don't even know what we're calling it these days, to be honest. Um, I think a November date was teased at some point. Um, 
I haven't heard much about that recently, though maybe in December we'll see, yeah. I guess. So just in terms of calendar context here, I mean, typically these things happen early in the week, sort of a Monday, typically a Tuesday. Um, next week is the last Tuesday in November. Um, they haven't announced it yet. Seems a little too late to announce one for next Tuesday. So I think we're looking at early December now. Um, yeah. But, you know, we're really pushing things and... I'm not really sure how to interpret it. Like we've seen the Ontario government just put out their budget. Um, Which admittedly was mostly just re-announcement and repackaging. Sure, 100%. But nonetheless, we're seeing governments subnationally, even nationally in other jurisdictions um, feel comfortable enough with COVID now to commit. To, yeah, at least to put something on Yeah, to, to put pen to paper and, and draw something up. And, you know, these are documents that can be updated um, and yet here we are with sort of nothing in mid-November, um, which is, you know, we're getting quite close to rigid processes around the 2021 budget cycle kicking up. Um, yes. Whereas in a usual year, the fall economic update would have been earlier in the fall. Um, yes. And, and usually... So, of course, last year was in December for kind of obvious reasons, but yes. Yeah, be because the election... Um, but yeah, nonetheless, that's sort of where we're at, sort of with all of Ottawa, sort of forgetting about the mandate letters and still sort of hanging on for the uh, the fiscal update. But I am sure the mandate letters are not forgotten within the civil service that they've been promised no, a, a or, new I mean, set of March orders. No, people are still orders. asking about and waiting for them. Yeah. So we will see. Uh, the other thing is, of course, uh, in the, the 23 days since our, our last episode uh, came out, uh, there has been a tremendous spike in COVID-19 cases uh, across the country. Who, who could have uh, seen, who seen that coming? Uh, who, could have, who could have predicted a second wave? No one. Sure, Indeed, surely I, surely no is, one. Yes. Uh, particularly in the West and in uh, Toronto and Toronto-like places near Toronto. Um so yeah, not not so good. Of course, uh, tragically, long-term care homes once again are being really, really seriously affected. Um, yeah, as Atan sort of alluded to, uh, we all kind of knew a second wave was coming, and yet seemingly we were once again kind of caught unprepared for it, which is a bit unfortunate. Um, this has caused people to be quite frustrated with both uh, public health officials and with elected governments. I think you know quite reasonably uh, in many cases. Um, and there was in fact a, a piece published in, uh, McLean's magazine last week, last week, last week. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if you'd call it McLean's magazine because it was on the website in the, unless you're getting the paper thank copy. You. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I just, I just want to be correct. This is my commitment, hey, at any rate, my the, commitment to our the, listeners this... to be as correct as humanly possible. Oh yes. You, you love to be precise and correct. Um, at any rate, this piece came courtesy of Canada's Professor of Everything and a fellow professor who I was not familiar with. Um, but the piece came down to essentially that the, uh, the public health officers in each province have, have extensive reserve powers uh, to be used in emergencies that they should make use of. Uh, Etienne, what did, you, what did you make of that piece? It strikes me a little bit as we should write the governor general, um, which is a favorite trope of sort of uh, opposition, opposition politicians. Um, you know, the governor general, the lieutenant governor should not, you know, pass this bill into law. It is, is an affront to whatever um, the issue du jour is. Um, 
but it doesn't really have democratic legitimacy and it's sort of scoffed at by um, crown worshippers, academics, people who follow the crown and our, our parliamentary system very well. Um, and it's sort of the same thing. Just because a power exists on paper or hypothetically, um, it doesn't mean it would be well received. It doesn't mean it has democratic legitimacy. Um, to see chief public health officers in some provinces step out of line with their premiers, where so far they've been working sort of hand in glove, um, I think would be a really difficult decision um, and, you know, very, very controversial to the point that it likely isn't worth it. Um, it yeah. So let me, let me uh, refer to the piece here, which refers to uh a bunch of Alberta's law, which is fairly typical of, of public health laws generally, uh, establishes the medical officer of health may do any or all of the following. Take whatever steps the medical officer of health considers necessary to A, suppress the disease and those who may have already been infected with it, B, protect those who have not already been exposed to the disease, C, to break the chain of transmission and prevent the spread of disease, and D, to remove the source of infection. There's some more after that, but you get the idea. Essentially, it's a very, 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 very broad uh, reserve power. Um, as Etienne says, I think, like, I, I don't disagree that I think that this reserve power as written is, is quite broad. Uh, I do think, though, that after, especially after, um, you know, the better part of a year of kind of an established chain of command, to see the, the chief medical officers of health in various provinces kind of buck that and, um, make decisions unilaterally would be uh, like, I, I don't just think it would be like a bad idea in terms of democratic legitimacy and accountability. I think it would be actively counterproductive. Yes. I think it would give a lot of oxygen and ammunition to people who want fewer restrictions. Because uh, like, be what, to... what do people think the premiers are then going to do? Just back down and not say anything and go quietly into their snail shells? I mean, in a sense, actually, I think a lot of premiers might want it to be not their problem anymore. <laughs> well, well, you know, like quite sincerely, one hundred percent. If someone could make this not Doug Ford or Scott Moe's problem tomorrow, I think they wouldn't actually mind all that much. But we've seen that uh, all the way through, particularly at the start of the crisis. Right? Was um, politicians were very happy to hand the microphone to public health officials and yes. point the finger at them for basically all decision making. Yes. Um, which uh, I think we can be critical of in a democracy because ultimately we like politicians to be our decision makers, not um, unelected appointed uh, public health officials. Um, yes, as President Schwarzenegger said, I was elected to lead, not to read. <laughs> um, but of course, everyone wants those decisions made um, in close concert with the scientific advice that they're getting from public health officials. And yes. so I, th I think we've been critical before of just... Yes, we've been... <laughs> we, we've dribbled up and down this particular court, but yes. Um, so to, to a degree, the extent to which it was happening, because it sort of undercuts the principles of responsible government. Um, but to see that happen, I think, would largely create distrust and confusion in um, the public health system, um, which yes. there's already a significant amount of confusion, particularly around communicating um various levels of jurisdiction you know infamously is is halloween on or is halloween off no one seems to know um 
And and whose jurisdiction is it to make that call? Is it the local, the municipal, or the uh, municipal, the uh, provincial, or the federal public health officer? Because all three of them weighed in, um, which is always interesting. Yes, and I, I think actually really the the onion really hit it out of the park today with an article entitled "COVID Deniers Struggling to Protest States' Incoherent, Constantly Changing Coronavirus Policies." Um, so. All that to say, I, I don't really have a lot of confidence that that the uh, the chief medical officer of health deciding to reign by fiat would uh, really actually help anything at this point. <laughs> no, um, I, I think I think we are in agreement there, one one hundred percent. Yes, like I and I, I totally understand the frustration, right? I I get it. Watching case counts shoot up uh, and you know, just thinking like, wow, it sure would be nice if someone did something about this. So the, the other uh, side of that decision in- or the other side of that has been, oh, I can point to one piece, Scott Gilmore's piece in uh, McLean's magazine. Oh, no, I mean the website. Friend of the show. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you, can't, you can't just throw that in for anyone. Um, his piece, um, which I confess I did not read, but I am, I think, sufficiently aware of the, the overarching uh thesis um which is basically it's time for the feds to step in um you know this was a live topic of conversation very early on um as to whether or not the federal government should see fit to use its emergency powers it held out and held out and it held out um until things ameliorated and now with wave two um it's a live debate again and a lot of people are you know picking battle lines Yes, Dale Smith has heard its call from the depths of the ocean. His his dreamless slumber interrupted by uh, the ability to say it's it's provincial jurisdiction. Provincial jurisdiction. I, I mean, I think the the heart of um, you know one side of the argument versus the other is whether or not people are choosing to see the pandemic as a series of regional pandemics or as a national pandemic. Um, I, I think there's also a legitimate. And, and very real capacity question here. Ottawa just simply does not have the experience of like large scale direct health system management. It of course does manage uh, a small health system. Uh, well, and even that, it, it mostly just funds it uh, when it comes to uh, services funded through indigenous services. And of course it funds some benefits uh, through the veterans program. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does not have, as Jules Duceppe famously said in the 2011 uh, debates, uh, how many hospitals does Ottawa run? And correctly, <laughs> the answer is, is none. None hospitals. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I genuinely think that as much as, like, I was looking around for some data on, on COVID infections today, and I had an absolute just not very fun time looking, like, reconciling various provincial public health websites and and you know other stuff and news stories and the federal public health agency and like yeah i think it'd be great if we had like a one-stop shop for this kind of data and and all of these other things but i i just do not really believe that like ottawa said reading a how to run uh however many hospitals across a huge country in in march would have gotten us to a much better place than we are now like i don't know i i think uh that that capacity just did not exist and could not really have been built in a realistic time frame in the pandemic situation. No, and I, I don't think so. Putting my 
hypothetical uh, federal government should be put in charge of things hat on. I'm trying to think of what exactly they would take the reins over. And I think where most people are coming at it is just from like business closures and stuff, having uniform uniformity and consistency over closing and businesses. And that's kind of fair. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it seems incredibly politically implausible for the federal government to, one, step on the turf of all of the provincial premiers who often have uh, substantially higher um, approval ratings than the federal government. Uh, to override them against the protests of the premiers. And then two, to do that in order to shut down large swaths of the provincial economy um, would be a hell of a move um, and sort of do it by fiat and across the entire country when there are some jurisdictions, mainly yes. the Atlantic bubble, where such measures would not be required really appreciated yeah. perhaps medically necessary etc um yeah so oh I, well, I, well it's I nice was, to view said business closures what's that I, I thought when you said business closures you meant more the like support side of it and of course they they but did do some supports but they've been doing instance, that. the lack of coordination yeah but like for instance the lack of coordination on like rent support right where their first program required landlords to buy in because they were kind of like, eh, you know, we don't want to step on the province's toes too much. I, I think the objection uh, there really is that that program was already negotiated with the provincial government, right? Which is where, or with yeah, provincial Yeah, that's governments. what I mean is that it was, an, it was an ineffective program made ineffective by the fact that it was shackled to the outcome of negotiations. Sure. Right. And it was, it was widely considered to be totally ineffective. Yes. And now a revised version is being pitched or yeah. well, go, and going it's, through. It's been important. Um, or it will, it will go live very soon, I believe, if not already. Um, but at any rate, yeah, that, like, there's stuff like that where it's like, for instance, you look at the U.S., uh, which we don't typically like to do. The who? Uh, the, who? <laughs> <laughs> the, what, the what now? Yeah, but it's like there, it's like the lack of, of federal leadership on, like, business closures has been, like, anarchic and not great. It's like a sort of baseline guarantee from the federal government that is like if you are a business anywhere in the country you will get x y and z if there is a closure that's good you know and, and we're kind of getting closer to that now but it took uh quite a long time and of course like various businesses missing for instance like the summer busy season uh in several key industries that yeah like most, it was pretty, most notably hospitality and uh yes it was a pretty grim uphill battle to get there that didn't really need to happen no fair enough yeah. Um, let's let's switch from COVID um, because I hate talking about COVID. Uh, There's only so much you can do in a given day. <laughs> and talk uh, legislative update. Um, so yes. one of the things I think, I mean, I know I have been watching, but certainly you as well, has been this government's legislative agenda, initially sort of broadly derailed by COVID, um, as much of the legislation has been sort of emergency legislation in direct relation to COVID. Uh, but with the House of Commons coming back in its hybrid format, um, the bulk of the emergency legislation done earlier, there's still, you know, COVID related bills going through the House. And uh, in fact, the Senate, um, I believe C9 is in the Senate now. Um, yeah. But the government has introduced its two what I'd call substantively new bills, not bills that had been, you know, basically um, introduced or largely written from previous sessions. Um, so what are those bills, Laurent, and what do they do? Sure. So C10 
uh, an act to amend the Broadcasting Act and to make related and consequential amendments to other acts has been introduced does, and has only... Does uh, it have a, a sexier short title? Uh, let's check it out. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me look at the actual The film. Quebec Cultural uh, Industries Act. Uh, short title, short title, short title. Doesn't really look like now, it, to be honest. Th this government hasn't really run with... Uh, you know, clever short titles. Um, I, no, I mean, yeah, you guys as much as as much the as the conservatives did. Yes. So yeah, no, they, there is no short title, but the the upshot of the act is basically to um, bring internet streaming into the Canadian broadcasting system. I, I will confess that the Canadian broadcasting system is not one I know terribly well. Uh, it's just not a file I've ever really had a ton of of interest in, or you know had much reason to deal with it and i, I still don't uh so <laughs> I, I i can't talk too much about this bill just because i i don't know that much about it but uh essentially the upshot like i said is to is to uh create a new class of what they're calling online undertakings in the bill that are considered broadcasting for the purposes of a broadcasting act um as well as to change canada's broadcasting policy which is sort of like the the pur purpose statement for what governs uh, our, our broadcasting regulations, et cetera, to include more uh, indigenous and racialized perspectives and to tell more indigenous and racialized stories. Uh, so that's the that's kind of the, the zoomed out picture. Uh, like I said, I, I won't have too much more to add on that because I just simply uh, don't know enough not to make a fool of myself on, uh, on broadcasting. Yeah, I'm sort of in the same camp. Broadcasting is not a, uh, an, an issue I have given much uh, much thought to. Um, broad impression of the bill is not super positive. Um, not a fan of some of the ways in which it mandates content. Um, you know, yeah, for... Michael Geist, as as is often the case, had a very good uh, blog post about some of the issues he had with the bill that I highly recommend any interested listener look up. And in fact, I will be referring to him uh, again very soon. For, uh, yeah, because, this is uh, the next bill is also relevant to his expertise. So, do you want to explain who Michael Geist is? Yeah, Michael Geist is a, a, a law professor who has a very cool law. last name. Uh, yes, the Michael Michael the Ghost. But yes, he's a law professor at the University of Ottawa who specializes in in, I guess, broadly speaking, technology law, uh, including broadcasting, including privacy, etc. Intellectual property, things. privacy, broadcasting. Anything, yeah, I don't really know how to lump those under uh, a broad umbrella, but generally those three in my understanding of his work. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. you have anything else to add on the broadcasting uh, law? Uh, nope. Okay. So, Bill C-11 uh, is the other law that was introduced actually just yesterday, uh, the 17th, which is an act to enact the Consumer Privacy Protection Act and the Personal Information and Data Protection Tribunal Act and to make consequential and related amendments to other acts. <laughs> this one does have a short uh, this one does have a short title. I hope so. What uh, what is their short yeah, title so for the bill? It is the Digital Charter Implementation Act. Because they see it as an implementation of the they digital should, charter. They, advice for ISA, just the Digital Charter Act. You know, just yeah. drop I mean, drop implementation. If you, so for me the digital charter has some nice principles but it is not much more than a statement of nice principles so i won't talk too much about it the substance of the bill really is broken up into two parts um which is as suggested perhaps by the title 
one part of it enacts a new Consumer Privacy Protection Act, and the second part of it enacts a Personal Information Data Protection Tribunal Act. Um, so the Consumer Privacy Protection Act, I'll zoom out again a bit. Uh, as some of you may know, and many of you probably don't, Canada has two major privacy laws. Uh, one governs the public sector and it's called the Privacy Act. Um, and also that was the law that established the Privacy Commissioner, which is sort of the enforcement office for privacy law, but it's curiously also an office or an officer of parliament, which is kind of an odd position where he is simultaneously in the position of being an independent law enforcement agency and an officer of parliament. Uh, which is kind of unique. Uh, and the second one introduced in 2000 was the was PIPIDA, which is the Personal Information Protection and Electronic, and, Electronic Documents Act. I need you to pay attention very carefully here. It's PIPIDA. <laughs> it is not yeah, PIPIDA. It is not anything else. It is PIPIDA. But PIPIDA, PIPIDA, whatever you call it, is now essentially dead because uh, it has been superseded by this new CPPA, uh, essentially, part one of PIPIDA has been repealed by this new law, which was basically all of the rules. Uh, and yeah, it based, part two is still in operation, but we won't get into that. It's now the Electronic Documents Act. Uh, but yes, the, the private sector privacy law is now this wholly new law. Or um, once once it's granted royal assent. Let me, let me just asterisk yes, your, your yes, statements yes. there. Once it, once it is passed. And, and comes into force. It's been granted there royal assent and comes into force. Thank you. Yeah, you're really, really having fun with this today, aren't you? <laughs> So traditionally, a lot of the issues with PIPIDA have been that, for instance, you have an, uh, an enforcement agency in the Office of the Privacy Commissioner, which has no powers to uh, actually enforce behavior or levy substantial fines. Uh, so that has been changed. The, the, office, the OPC now has order-making powers, which they've been asking for for a long time, uh, as well as the ability to levy significant fines, though there was a wrinkle in that. We'll come to that later. Um, the consent principle, uh, which is one of the, basically to, yeah, to zoom out and back up again, PIPIDA was a uh, law that was based basically on principles. And then um, there was, it, it was always a bit strange and it was not very prescriptive and it was really about are you respecting the principle? And that was really the determination of the privacy commissioner. Um, so that approach is still kind of there, uh, mostly there, I would say. And the consent principle being an important one, being that you can only collect information with the consent of the person whose information it is. Um, that That is still largely the case. There are now some exemptions uh, to that principle, um, which it, I think is a bit of a mixed bag, and I won't get too much detail just because it's fairly technical. Um, there's regulation or a, now a requirement for an explanation of decisions made by algorithms, which is good because, uh, you know, like there have been many cases in the U.S., for instance, and this is less of a concern in Canada, at least on the public sector side, but I could see it being an emerging issue as sort of more of this technology makes its way into the public sector, that, for instance, decisions about uh, disability benefits or unemployment benefits are being made by an algorithm, and people basically would be getting, you know, results wholly inconsistent with what their, their expectations were. And it turned out that, for instance, the uh, software had just like had a bug in it or something. And that sure. it was a wrongly decided by a piece of software. Yeah, there's, and they had no recourse. There's a lot of conversations um, going on right now, uh, in particular, you know, in the, in the federal government in particular, they put out a, I can't remember how it was framed, a charter or a guideline around automated decision making uh, via Treasury Board. Um, yes, that was in the public. Yeah, as, as a public sector one. Yeah, yeah, which was very welcome. But this is now applying really good, it beyond uh, the public sector. 
yeah which is which is great um yeah i had some uh, some good notes about this which i am now pulling up there we go um yes so those are, are some of the good parts i think there's basically yeah as i said there's exemptions to when the consent principle applies that i think are kind of a broad concern it's not super good there's data portability which is something that kind of advocates in the social media space have been asking for a long time as to kind of address the issues with the competitive dominance of, of the facebook's of the world uh which is nice um yeah so that's those are sort of the, the big good parts uh there's also a plain language requirement uh so no more really long um unreadable essentially uh what are the what's the term like terms and conditions for, for various Term, services terms of service right. or yeah yes uh so the second part of the law like and yeah all that to say there, there's it's kind of a mixed bag i would say there's a lot of good in there there's some serious concerns so it'll it'll definitely get studied quite thoroughly at committee and there'll be lots of interested parties on on both sides of this um but yes all that to say you know i i think there's there's definitely some some good stuff in there and then Stuff to be and the and just side of it just is... being in a just to pick up on your point of being studied at committee being in a minority parliament, um, there is the substantially greater likelihood of all of these bills being, um, let's say, healthily amended at committee. Though this will actually be an interesting test in a sense because this will actually be pretty much the first time we're seeing substantive legislation at committee, right? Yes. Like uh, the first couple of bills did not have a lot to them. Then we had all the COVID bills. These are kind of the first set of non-slam dunk pieces of legislation <laughs> actually making their way through the system. And they're ones in which I think reasonable people can disagree. And they're ones in which the opposition are not likely to be all necessarily on the same side. Um, Indeed. Where that was more so the case with, you know, not necessarily with bills, but some of the other tactics going on in committee. Um, yeah. So it'll be a much more challenging situation. I mean, I think it'll basically be the first time um, that the government has had to substantially negotiate around amendments to bills in the um, yeah. Though we'll see. Past right, five years. It does have a very commanding position in terms of its uh, the side of its minority. So uh, it could just be like we're going to treat this as a confidence motion and well, not know, in too bad committee. No, I think they can. They oh no, not a committee. No, but no. I amend, just like, but they can. You know. If, if the I mean yeah we'll have to watch and see what the how the bill is amended at committee it will be a bit of a novelty um the so the second side of the bill is the uh, the new tribunal so basically it, as I alluded to earlier the privacy commissioner historically has been an enforcement arm without much actual enforcement muscle uh, now it is getting enforcement muscle and consequently they're creating a bit of uh, appellate oversight uh, in this tribunal uh, their rationale was that they wanted to reduce burden on the courts, which I guess is all fair and good. I think there's concerns. I, I think the history of many tribunals that govern kind of industry specific stuff or certainly like industry, not industry disproportionate, uh, subject matter, let's say, uh, have a history of being kind of captured by those same industries. So that risk certainly exists here. Uh, we will see what happens, and certainly there, there's room to to make some changes around who gets appointed to the boards, etc., or the the tribunal and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, there's some room there, uh, but that is kind of it's it's more of a tack on to the first part than it is a really 
you know, essential second part in and of itself. The, the bulk of this bill is in the CPPA. So there you go. I, I'd say that's that's kind of my my cliff's notes on the new law. Very good. Let's let's leave those there. Um, just in terms of referencing committee, um, it seems like things are slowly getting unjammed at committee, most notably at finance. Um, finance. Yeah, finance and ethics have both had kind of like uh, filibusters sort of raging for about two weeks now. But there's been a compromise at finance in terms of the, I guess it's primarily still we documents and the redaction of the we documents that had been done by the uh, respective government departments or PCO, I'm not sure which, um, where the intent of parliament seems to have been to have, or the parliamentary motion seems to have had the redactions um, being in the hands of the parliamentary uh, law clerk. Um, so it seems like that's going to go ahead, that the government is going to hand over broadly unredacted document with the exception of um, cabinet confidence and lean on the law clerk um, in order to do those redactions. I don't have a huge expectation that anything, you know, particularly spicy has been redacted. Um, I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I, I stand to be I stand to be uh, wrong on this one if, if there is anything that's particularly sort of bad faith redactions. That's, that is always a possibility, but it's it's not the one I'm banking on. Very good. Um, but that also frees up so that takes us the finance committee to do their usual pre-budgetary stuff, which I think it's probably too little too late. And uh, we'll we'll see how it goes. Indeed. And that takes us to our ethics scandal of the week well of the <laughs> episode i guess which uh, yeah whatever uh yeah do you want to lead in on that or do you want me to um so i mean reasonably straightforward and very much a story as old as time a member of parliament um was reported to have been hiring um her sister um to work as a constituency staffer um seems bad wasn't always um against the rules i believe the rules standing orders that has commons were amended in 2012 is it standing orders or some other guidance um it, it's board of internal economy rules. sure um so yeah. the board of internal economy is a particular committee of parliament as uh, one of the standing committees that creates basically the rules for governance of the house of commons um the infamously secretive board of internal economy before it was opened up for transparency by the the liberal government um yeah, yeah it's it's more or less a, a housekeeping committee um but so they had rules that they changed um, which i think rightfully so it seems bad to have mps um, employing their their family members in their constituency offices or or elsewhere um she has now been resigned removed from caucus whichever um, and is sitting as an independent. Um, the ethics commissioner had been alerted to this. The ethics commissioner had, you know, referred it back to the Board of Internal Economy. Um, Zion's office has now reversed course and said that, uh, well, initially that is what they did. They would now take a look at this um, as a breach under the Conflict of Interest Act. Uh, yeah, there was a section. Act or, or code. Uh, yeah, an article Code, code yes she's, she's just a, a member of the house of commons but yeah there was an article for kind of thing in there that i was like that could be pretty plausibly the case here um but yeah but but to say i mean primarily it's a breach of very clear and very obvious parliamentary rules yeah to an extent the investigation by the ethics commissioner i think is a little um you know to an extent it's irrelevant um you know it certainly looks bad optically 
Um, but in terms of consequences, like I don't know if there is a side here for, you know, fraud or RCMP style investigation. I, I just I don't have the legal grounding to say one way or the other. Um, but that seems more significant or potentially more significant than, you know, we've, we've talked about the ethics commissioner at length here and he doesn't really have enforcement or uh, enforcement yeah, mechanisms. He just, he just writes you a letter telling you how bad you Yeah. Been. And if she's already out of caucus her. and had this sort of this national yeah. slap on the wrist, then I, I think that's more significant than anything he's likely to, to be able to do. It is worth highlighting here that uh, in this case, uh, Mr. Tansi has been a member of parliament for quite a long time uh, with, with some interruptions. Uh, and she's she's had her sister work for her before when it was within the rules. And to that, I say, fine. Uh, it's not the choice I would make, but, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, it but seems, since, seems bad. Since the, yeah, but since the rules changed, right, it's worth saying that she seems to have, like, not only hired her sister, but, like, gone some way to conceal that actively by like having her hide from the public in the constituency office by using a fake name like pretty premeditated and like actively you know thought out kind of uh concerted pretty pretty not, not good pretty hard to here. not have premeditated hiring of staff yeah pretty hard so for that, that to be in uh, you know in the, in the heat of the moment yeah, this is not someone tripping into this. Was, so I, I do think it was that, aggravated like, hiring. Pretty, yeah, some pretty stern measures are are not unwarranted here. Um, I I think where we can add the most value to this conversation is just talking, you know, broadly about constituency staff, um, where they come from, what do they do, um, because I feel like not everyone might be familiar with that. Um, where I would start is more on the MP side first. Um, MPs, when they get elected, you know, initially or whenever, um, face a lot of different pressures because people are aware that MPs have budget and they have the, the capacity to hire people. So often, uh, you know, in my experience, I'd say constituency staff come from one of two places. Either they're handed down to you or, you know, you inherit them with the office um, more frequently the case um, when you're keeping, uh, you know, when you're taking over from a member of parliament in the same party as yourself when you're elected, um, or they are someone who has helped you substantively on your campaign. Often, uh, you know, a, a university student or someone who is really engaged in helping you win your election, someone you trust, um, they don't want to go to Ottawa. They don't want to do that move. And so they find themselves working in the constituent, in the consid office in your, in your riding. But there are, you know, MPs can either, MPs come from all sorts of different backgrounds, right? Um, some MPs are CEOs, um, who have had the experience of hiring all sorts of people before and sort of have a good sense of what's permissible and what's not. And then other MPs have never, you know, have never, well, I mean, have been had never had a professional career before, not to mention the type of authority or management yeah, expectations. Yeah, never, never managed, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, there was there was a line that struck me. I think it's from what's the Samara book? Common Ground? Uh, no, that's the Trudeau book. No, that's just um, the Trudeau. Tragedy, <laughs> tragedy of the Commons. Um, that talks about MPs like. It's in terms of their salary, but the same thing is largely true of uh, their management. Um, it's either the worst paid job that they've you know done in a very long time or the highest paid for a lot of MPs. 
that MPs come from a very diverse range of backgrounds. And so some MPs are less able or less well-prepared to uh, manage the pressures of having other people's expectations around, oh, you should hire me. I've been helping you out, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I think that's how some MPs find themselves in these situations. Um, not, not to say that that's necessarily the case here. So um, constant staff are in an interesting position because what they do is broadly it's manage the, uh, the member of parliament's activities in the riding, um, you know, often uh, outsourcing of the uh, member of parliament's calendar, um, the events they go to, the hands they shake, the babies they kiss. Um, a lot of local politics, that sort of thing, that the Ottawa staff are, you know, not inclined or well positioned to comment on. Um, but the more significant side of it, in some ways, is the casework. Um, this is local um, constituents coming in with, be it passport issues or immigration issues or what what are sort of other common ones that they deal with veterans ei yeah those are our two big ones yeah a lot of the ones where the government actually does the direct service delivery yeah d depending on where you are too uh, if there's uh, a lot of indigenous communities in your riding you're going to be dealing with indigenous services as well and so this is actually a reasonably it, it seems like a no-brainer but at the same time it's also quite a controversial role for mp to play for mps to play there are special mechanisms set up for MPs and MPs offices to engage with um, government departments to sort of like fast track things or find out additional information, et cetera, et cetera. I know, I don't know if it's still the case. It probably is. Um, but the IRCC or the, the immigration department um, had basically an, uh, a member's hotline that constituents staff and members could avail themselves of to sort of get more detailed information instead of using public um, resources or uh, sorry, public um lines or contact information and so the con like some members of parliaments really members of parliament really throw themselves into this work and see it as incredibly rewarding um, but the flip side of it is that a lot of people sort of question the need for members of parliament to be doing this that this is not in uh, sort of the duties that are typically ascribed to a member of parliament i.e holding holding the government say... to account Yes, and I think generally speaking, right, if you described a country's system as, um, oh, yes, uh, there are public services and you can get better access yes. to them by calling your, your local elected politician, people would be like, hmm, that's kind of strange or perhaps undesirable. Yeah, um, but no yes. nonetheless, that is the status quo and that's what's developed over the years um, as MPs. Um, you know, have turned to government to try and resolve constituents' problems. And, yeah, and I mean, it, it comes from a place of, like, when, good, you know... Good intention. Constituency offices haven't, haven't always existed, I think it's really worth saying. They're sort of a product of the 1970s, and in fact, one of the, I believe, the first MP to have a uh, direct constituency office that would do sort of these kinds of caseworker issues was an NDP MP in Cape Breton. Uh, in the 70s and since then they have they've really taken off and in fact I, I think both of us would attest that um, parliamentary budgets are largely oriented towards the constituency these days um, yes typically you have one or at most two staff uh, on Parliament Hill and usually four or five in the riding. The, yeah it depends on the size of the riding rural rural riding is obviously sure. having yes. larger constit um, teams 
Um, But broadly, I mean, the intention behind that is sort of the inverse of where one would typically view an MP's duties, where MPs view their re-election hopes as more directly linked through their constituency work. And they sort of want to solve their solve passport immigration uh, EI claims their way back into office, um, which I think is, you know, not not the worst way politically. I mean, people certainly appreciate that that attention that constituency offices are able to provide. Um, but it is well, somewhat it disjointed with the structure of our political system. Yes, and for MPs, I think it's it's a, a place to feel valued and useful, which is always nice because the House of Commons is not always that. Yes, very much not uh, always the case. So, yes. So, no, I mean, like, yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I personally have all the respect in the world for constituency staff. I think they, they work incredibly. I could not do their jobs. Uh, they are incredibly difficult jobs. Uh, they're, you know, they work through lots of really, really personally difficult cases in, in many places and just in general do really incredible work. So to me... They are they are one of of the real troops along with the troops, who are also real the real troops. Very good. Um, yes. Anything else to say on consist staff? Uh, only that I have endless respect for them. There you go. Um, I mean, often consist staff um, come to Ottawa and become uh, legislative staff. Uh, they're very different jobs. Um, just something to be aware of, but constituency staffing can also be a great, uh, a great foot in the door, um, for eventually getting a position in Ottawa or work, working your way to Ottawa. If, if that's ever your intention in politics. There you go. Um, so a, uh, November 4th came and went, um, very significant, very significant, day. very significant milestone <laughs> for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, the most significant one I can think of was the expiration of the five-year lobbying ban for Harper-era staffers, myself included. Um, so what, what that means is when we left, I'm speaking we as in sort of Harper-era staffers, um, the 2015 election, um, you know, well-known history, uh, Conservative Party loses, I don't remember what the election day was, was it October 21st or 22nd or something like that? I believe that? it was the 21st. Uh, it was 19th last time, right? Yeah, maybe it was the 19th. I don't know, one of those days. Um, so the, the results come in, and I mean, this is, um, you know, comparable uh, somewhat to the conversation that's happening in our, uh, our neighbor to the south. Um, but the election results come in, it's clear that it's a Trudeau majority. Um... Then I drive back from the riding I was working in, um, middle of the night basically, to maybe pack up my office the next morning. Um, turns out it wasn't quite as pressing as that. Um, my minister was still the minister until the swearing in of the new minister. This is always the case. Um, which meant that November 4th um, at eh, not quite noon per the American tradition, but some sometime in the early morning, um, Trudeau shows up with his cabinet uh, on a OC Transpo bus or his uh, soon to be cabinet on an OC Transpo bus and gets sworn in by the governor general. And that is the time where my minister ceases to be a minister. And basically, we would not be allowed back into the the office that we had, had worked in. Although a little more complicated than that, but that's roughly what it is. Basically, our office, our jobs terminated that day. Between the election day and the swearing in of the new cabinet, 
Um, it was largely just packing up, but hypothetically, had there been a national emergency concerning our portfolio, whatever it is, um, we would go back to work and likely work in conjunction with the Trudeau transition team to make sure that you know everything is kosher and that there's no sort of uh, constitutional, not constitutional issue, but sort of political legitimacy um, crisis. Um, but that is all a long-winded way of pointing to November 4th as the last day in office for conservative staffers. So what you need to know next is there is a five-year lobbying ban for staffer for designated public office holders, um, of which staffers um, in ministerial offices and ministers are a part of. And the five-year lobbying ban has, you know, reasonably consequential uh impacts in terms of your employability in ottawa uh, a lot of positions in sort of the greater ottawa bubble um, involve the ability to do lobbying activity um, sometimes not necessarily directly as a lobbyist but if you're working for an ngo and you need to uh, regularly contact mps or whatever the case may be so come november 4th um, i think a lot of people were of the expectation uh, of the lobbying ban um, of their lobbying ban expiring. But in the build-up to it, there was a lot of conversation in sort of the uh, cohort of Harper-era staffers as to whether or not that was in fact the correct day. Um, where some staffers pointed to 30 days later, so roughly December 4th, as being the actual day of the ban expiring, um, based on an understanding that uh, staffers were paid for 30 days following the swearing-in of the Trudeau cabinet, basically 30 days following their um, dismissal, which led to a great deal of confusion um, with a lot of people getting mixed messages. And so should note there's very similar provisions on the uh, commissioner or the, uh, yeah, the commissioner of ethics um, as well as the commissioner of lobbying. Um, but there's different parts of the post-employment obligations that each of them hold. And I understand that the ethics commissioner has been much stricter around how they interpret these 30 days than the OCL has been. Um, so I remembered that I, I had recalled from a letter I'd received from the OCL, uh, I think shortly after my, I think it was shortly after sort of the, the turnover that November 4th was going to be the last day. So I, I reached out to the OCL and just to confirm that because I wanted to have it in writing. I wanted to have something I could point to to confirm that November 4th was in fact the last day. Um, and they, they confirmed that for me. Other staffers that I've spoken to um, then reached out and they got back a response that was uh, not the same, which is, you know, it was actually from the same individual in the OCL. Um, and there said, it is difficult to establish the exact date that the exact date that represents the end of your lobbying prohibition. We recommend you wait until December 2020 to proceed with your lobbying activities. As if it's not, they weren't able to establish exactly what five years means in interpreting the act that they're in charge of, which struck me as incredibly strange. And it is a bit of a you had one job kind of thing. Yeah. And not only that, it's different people are getting different answers from the same person in their office where there is no reason at all. In the same situation. There, Yeah, there's no difference in situation. Like the, the swearing in of cabinet, it wasn't like, you know, various cabinet ministers were staggered in their swearing in. It all happened in the same afternoon 
the same rules apply across the board. And so you have the case of some people, you know, questioning whether or not it applies to them, not sure whether or not to reach out to the OCL. Um, others having been told by the OCL, oh, or sometime in December, it, it's really sort of inequitable um, application of the rules and doesn't make a lot of sense. So that's sort of my, my duly noted, if you will. So there you go. Any, anything? I don't really have anything to add you have, on that. You have nothing to add to that. <laughs> let me, let me just, Not really, Let no. me just add one piece. Um, I, I, I'm aware of some um, liberal staffers that listen to the podcast who will one day be in these same shoes. Um, the same was very much the case. No, they're going to they're gonna rule forever. Dude. <laughs> one, one can only help. Um, my, my one piece of advice to liberal staffers, I, I mean, I have multiple pieces of advice, but I, I will leave it at one for now. Um, in terms of your post-employment, oblig- uh, post-employment obligations, there's, there's a word I guess I'm forgetting. So, yeah. uh, your post-employment obligations is to become very familiar with them very very familiar with them and to and to really deeply consider how they're going to impact your career once you leave ottawa um there is a day and night difference between if you leave government um before the government dissolves and if you leave government with 500 other um of your colleagues at the same time in the same labor market there is a very marked difference between the two um, and one, I'm not sure enough staffers consider very profoundly while they're in government, because while you're in government, until that day comes that the elector pushes you out, um, everything is gravy and everything is great. But I think staffers don't, staffers are often young, you know, they're often in the 20 to 30 year range, um, simply delighted to have a job, not to mention a job in with as much significance and prominence as they do. Um, and so they don't very seriously consider the next steps and the implications of waiting um, until the elector pushes you out. Make, well, there we go. We've all learned an important lesson today. Makes sense. We love it. Same, same goes for you, Laurent. No, I'm just kidding. No one's ever pushing yeah, you out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, we'll, we'll worry about that bridge when we get to it. I think that would be a fantastic bridge for, for us to see, in fact. Um, yeah, I think that'll probably do it for us today. Uh, and yeah, hopefully uh, you'll stick around for the next hundred. <laughs> that will take uh, between seven and ten years, based on current projections. It's just, it, yeah, sort of like a reverse COVID. It's just uh, the exponential curve applies, but it's the time between episodes. Asymptotic. There you go, folks. Well, that 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 does it. Thanks, everyone. Rate and review on your platform of choice: uh, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever the kids are calling it these days. Uh, always appreciated. Uh, yeah, that'll do it. Bye-bye!